I think that I, yeah. what I've always appreciated about you, Scott, is that your goal hasn't been to tell people things are black and white. More or less, though, you're exposing the shades of gray so that we can think for ourselves. And that's what we really need yeah. to do is we need to spend more time thinking for ourselves then, you know, I, I don't know who's saying that out there, but I can just picture somebody on a on a 30 second Instagram reel saying that, you know, rat studies are useless. And then from there, a thousand people just repeat that and repeat that and repeat that. Let's look at it right. today. What are the benefits? But then at the yeah. same time, what are the drawbacks too? What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally, and welcome to the new year. This is our first uh, episode of Muscle Minds this year. I'm excited to get this thing rolling. Back in the past, like last year, it was actually the last episode a week or so ago, um, we talked about potential benefits of melatonin, and there was a lot of really cool stuff with that. And I heard something, I heard some feedback from two people, and it's something that I had heard before. Uh, it was said... Um, uh, rat studies don't mean anything. Rat studies are garbage. You know, they don't they don't mean anything. And I thought to myself, huh, I don't think that they're complete garbage. I understand they aren't identical to a human study. But that said, um, Scott and I have been talking about it. And we thought this would be a, a really good topic in itself. Who better to explain this than Scott Stevenson? What's up, man? How <laughs> <laughs> much, dude? Yeah, this is I, this is one of those things. I kind of had to make a call at the beginning. I'm actually, you could go hop. You could teach. I, I was telling actually Nick Ware. I think that's why I mentioned this too. Maybe it was you. You could teach an entire graduate class on this topic. Okay. Like it's an important topic. For instance, in my uh, academic career, when I was uh, going through school, I started off doing animal work. So I did for a year and a half, two years almost. I did research with rats, and okay. I, but I wanted to work with humans. I'm too much of an animal lover. I just. I just couldn't bring myself to because you lose animals sometimes inadvertently, and then they have to be sacrificed at the end, and it kind of thing. It's just for sure. I could do, yeah. But but you see, especially in in the exercise science world, there are many many departments where you have individuals who are like you've been the same department. You've got basically colleagues functioning on the same level: animal research, rat research. It was literally that way at University of Texas, yeah, um, at University of Georgia. There wasn't anyone doing any any animal research, but at Texas, there certainly was. So I was in Roger Fair's lab. Um, this John Ivy, people might know about John. He um, he wrote one of the first carbohydrate timing or the nutrient timing books years ago. He's now retired, a professor emeritus at University of Texas at Austin. Great guy. He was the second on my master's thesis. He did both animal research and rat research, mainly rat rats and mice, depending on which model made the most sense, and humans. And there was another guy who, um, I mean, Dr. Starnes, he just did all, all rat stuff, basically, with hearts. So, but, but there's, there's something to that. So you see this, and the question that's important to understand are what are the limitations of positive advantages. So you could literally do an entire class. This topic comes up over and over and over again. But the bottom thing I'm going to kind of go into is sort of help folks who haven't, don't have research training, haven't done research, you haven't been in that kind of situation, help them a little bit kind of contextualize that there is a reason why for for centuries there have been literally millions of researchers who've used animal models for, for various reasons to study various phenomena in, in mammals and then use that as a step to understanding what happens in humans. 
sure. there's just some stuff you can't do in rats. So to make the statement, I one statement, you, you may even talk with someone else, one statement that I, I saw was rats don't care over to humans. It was just simply that. Right. right. So a very sort of blanket statement. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like saying, you know, and nowadays, if you only want to get somewhere um, more quickly, you would have an automobile or some sort of motorized uh, means of transportation. And it's like saying bicycles are worthless. Yeah. Like, there's there's no need whatsoever to ever have a bicycle. It's, there's no purpose whatsoever. Like, what if you want exercise? What if you're just going a short way? People use bicycles all over the world in other countries and other cultures, right? Yeah. Where they don't have to go very far. There are people like even in like the big cities, people there's, there's people who deliver stuff on bicycles because you can get there faster, yeah. right? Because of traffic and stuff. So to say like bicycles are useless because you don't have a use for a bicycle or you don't see a use for a bicycle, it's like it's a little too much of a, a black and white statement. Very very few things, especially in science, are black and white. You know, so and that, this that's, is a, that's kind of for this. something you you stroke a chord, struck a chord with me too. I feel like that yeah. that's something I see in our society in general right now is the a lot of real black and white thinking that, you know, politically you're either with us or you're against us. You're either pro this or you're anti that, you know, it's like, and the, and the same thing carries over to bodybuilding that, you know, we we've talked a hundred times on drugs and stuff that, you know, there was a time that we wanted to just like absolutely annihilate estrogen. All estrogen was bad. And now everybody's saying like, no, yeah. leave estrogen. You need it. It's good. But right. it's good within right. reason. I think that I, yeah. what I've always appreciated about you, Scott, is that your goal hasn't been to tell people things are black and white. More or less, though, you're exposing the shades of gray so that we can think for ourselves. And that's what we really need yeah. to do is we need to spend more time thinking for ourselves then, you know, I, I don't know who's saying that out there, but I can just picture somebody on a on a 30 second Instagram reel saying that, you know, rat studies are useless. And then from there, a thousand people just repeat that and repeat that and repeat that. Let's look at it right. today. What are the benefits? But then at the yeah. same time, what are the drawbacks, too? Yeah. And the thing that it's it is convenient. It's easier just to compartmentalize things and say it's this or that. Right? Yeah. You go in the, there's just two boxes. There's no, no inter, intermediate potential forms of utility for rat studies, let's say. Um, and that's nice because you don't have to think then. You don't yeah. have to you don't have to contextualize. You don't have to see the nuances. You don't have to see the shades of gray. So it's helpful. It's a, it's just a normal human instinct to do that to the extent possible, but then you're overshooting the mark if you just do that you know, all the time. Yeah. Um, you, you just miss so many of the beautiful nuances of life, I think. So Should I bring yeah. this up so and get us rolling? Yeah, let's let's bring it up. I'm going to pull it up on my end. All right. I'm sorry if I'm looking up and down because I've got two. That's all right. Two screens going here. We got a lot happening. You think I'll be all right over here in the yeah. corner? Uh, if you look at us, how I have this set up. Yeah. You think we'll be okay over here? Yeah, we may have to move it now and again. Okay. Well, I'll um, start us out there then, and I'm going to go ahead okay. and actually, I don't even really need to. I can just go like this. Boom. There we go. Yeah. There we go. So again, sorry, it's just like the last one. I sort of whipped this together. This isn't, but when I do my seminars, you know, they're they're paid on location, what have you, or the webinars that I do, I you know, I run through them. Literally, I haven't even talked through these slides. So there's probably typos and stuff. So I apologize for that. But um, and I just came up with a topic. I've actually, um, I've got a, uh, and I'll show people how to find this. But I wrote an article like almost ten years ago now on this topic for John Meadows' site. Are you a man or a mouse? 
and it's hmm. about animal models of, of muscle growth. So I want to sort of focus on that because it's just one sort of sliver um, of research where you can see, okay, are we are these studies in this in this area in this arena are they relevant at all? Do they what what do they tell us? We could talk about this. You can ask any questions you want if you go along, Scott, because we could talk about each of these slides kind of forever. All right. So this was um here's a study. Let's see. Make sure. I, all right, I'm gonna have to use. There we go. I've got. All right. So this is uh, a review article that came out not too long ago, and these are a couple figures I stole um, just to look at the number of research um, experiments that are done with animals. And the, the, the table on the left is the number of animal procedures in Great Britain in 2018. Okay. Um, and so if you look at look along the species column there, the left, mice, fish, rats, birds, other mammals, reptiles, blah, blah, blah. Um, a total just in Great Britain in 2018 of experimental procedures, 1.8 million, right? So the reason I bring up these numbers is to say um, these are just experimental procedures. There's other other procedures that were done that weren't even, even experimental. It's just basically developing the models, um, things that had to be done, which you require approval for. The reason that I mentioned this is that just make an absolute statement like animal research, like the, the, there's no value that the animal research doesn't carry to humans is like, so why are we, why are we making like three and a half million mistakes in a year and just, and just the, and just great Britain. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's a massive number of, I mean, we used a lot of rats, rats and mice, rodents are seen often in exercise physiology. Mice is used a lot because they're really, really small you don't have to feed them a whole lot. Um, of course, you can you can make transgenic mice. You can bring in hundred mice, um, and they're really they don't require so much space. Um, so really, they're really you don't have, like unlike a fish, they don't have to be underwater, or what have you. So it's a really efficient and convenient way of having your subjects all kind of grouped together. So here is um, another on the myself out of the way here. On the right is another. Um, reporting in the, at the USDA um, from 2008-2017 of um, animal usage in okay. research studies. Same kind of thing. We're seeing like a million um, studies here in 2008. Um, a little bit less actually. Animal research has kind of gone down, which I'm, that, doesn't, that doesn't bother me one bit. It just means we're probably getting probably better at determining when we can do animal research, when not. Mm. The high point in 2010, but we're talking about millions of of um, studies that are going on each year, and all these various species. They use cats and dogs, which I hate to see. Yeah. You know, that was one of the things that really got me when I was in Texas. I go to the Animal Research Center there, the Ark they called it, yeah, like, the, like Noah's Ark, and I'd see dogs running around there. That would just like destroyed me. So, I, I bet. yeah, it's a big it's a big deal. So I'm not like I. I I'm a big I'm a big proponent of minimizing animal research consent possible, but it does have its utility. So let's go to this to the next slide. Get into the good. Remember some of the and or bodybuilding related stuff. My screen there. So this is um here's some animal models of exercise and resistance overload. We're kind of I just kind of threw all these together. So sorry for the kind of lack of organization. That's all right. Um, so in the upper right. I've got a, I, I took from a, a paper from 2019, um, a rat running behavior scoring system. So this is the thing that's interesting about, about rodents. It's a limitation. Um, 
but it's worth knowing this happens. I know in running, this also happens in swimming when they do swimming models with rodents. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's literally a potentially a limiting factor. Um, and it's a, a limitation and maybe even a, a deficiency in this type of research is that you can only train the animals that want to run. Wow. So you can score some animals, and this is even animals that, that, that come from the same litter of, of rodents, let's say, mm-hmm. and some of them want to run and some of them don't. And the way the, way the, the rodent uh, training happens typically is the treadmill that's got a shock grid at the one end. So you put them on the treadmill, and they quickly learn that if they don't run, they will get shocked. Some animals just would rather be shocked. So they literally just say, I'm not running. They just go and they jump on the, on the shock grid. They just, no kidding. And you try to and train them not to do that. But some of them will just want to do this. Huh. So you can see like there's a non-runner. Um, they'll refuse to run. They freeze on the treadmill or they're on the shock grid. I'm reading from the bottom here of uh, score number five. And they get removed from the study. Okay. Um, with, with swimming, sometimes you put, so you put animals in like a big, like a barrel, um, a big pail. Yeah. And some rodents um, will swim around. And that's the idea is they kind of doggy paddle their way around. And those are good swimmers. Mm-hmm. And some of them will figure out they're like, because, of course, they're scared of it. There's a human on the surface, just like a frog would, you know, a frog or you know, something in a, some amphibian. Um, you come up to them and they dive bomb. They go under, right? Well, yeah. rats will do that. Some rats will do that. And they'll like, they'll just go to the bottom of the bottom of the barrel and they'll just sit hold their breath as long as they can and they come back up to the surface huh. and they'll take some rest and like oh there you are again shit and they just so they go down they swim down to the bottom and they just sit there yeah right so they're not swimming i mean that's that's a stress yeah but it's not a swimming stress it's not an exercise stress that we're looking for it's a stress on the cardiovascular system etc cetera, etc cetera. so those are the non-swimmers so that's for instance something that happens with running it happens in some of these other studies um in various degrees but like it's like the one just below to the right there. There's a raft cat press, yeah, calf that. press. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's been a couple of these. Sometimes they can load weights on rats and train them to climb ladders. So wow. literally climbing up ladders with loaded vests on. And this one you can see there's and I you guys can't probably see. I think you can. Let me do this here. Put up my little pen, and you can see there's a little uh, ring that goes around his neck. And this is a, a feeding tube. So there's little food pellets in there. Okay. So he has to he has to stand up and extend his legs. So he trains the plantar flexors, the calves, and they have a little weight connected to this ring around his neck so that his shoulders press on that. So it's kind of like he's doing a calf, standing calf press with the weight on his on his shoulders. Yeah. yeah. And that weight loads him. So you can yeah. do progressive overload in this weight. So they get their feeding only if they – this is the ultimate like food reward, right? Yeah. Because they have to wild. train themselves. They have to, they have to produce effort. And you can train that way with a, with a food reward. Yeah. Here's a, a system with rodents that is an interesting. We use e-stimulation. I actually developed this system when I was in Texas. I I wrote the software. Really? Created the apparatus using a solenoid. Yeah, I didn't. I, mean, I just had to figure it all out from scratch. And we would do, we did something a little bit different. We actually implanted a headgear here and ran a wire down um, to the tibial nerve. And then you strap the animal's foot to do a unilateral calf press yeah. on this kind of a pulley system. So that when they plantar flex, that this thing rotates and that lifts up this weight and that loads the calf then. And you can do progressive overload. Um, this was, we talked about this in a previous podcast. I think that was maybe in one of those like 100 to 102. The we did. Podcast studies worth knowing. Yeah. We've talked about it so, more than just that one time, but I had never seen yeah. the picture, the little diagram until right now. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's a cool, cool model. Mine was a little, little different, but it's based on this. Um, the cool thing when you activate with this with e-stim, literally, so the animals were anesthetized; they're unconscious when they're get, when they're doing their training. Um, so you just use e-stim. You turn on the tibial nerve that turns on both the anterior tibialis yeah. as well as all the plantar flexors, the gastrocnemius, the soleus, and the plantaris. So your all those muscles get trained and they lift and lower the load, right? Um, not so much lowering; it's mainly concentric. You just turn it on, and they do the they do the plantar flexion, you turn it off, and then it just comes back. But what happens, because all those plantar flexors are stronger than the anterior tibialis in the front, that muscle gets turned on, the anterior tib, and undergoes an eccentric contraction. Yeah, okay. Because it just gets stretched while it's contracting. And you get massive, you get increased protein synthesis there, you get massive growth that way too. So it's just another animal model that's interesting. Um Here's some other, and kind of the point here to keep in mind is that the reason why these things were done and they have been done. Um, and here's another cool one. People talk about um, uh, the possibility of hyperplasia. So here's here's the closest thing. This is a training study that was done with cats. Um, Bill Gagnier and Jose Antonio did this. Jose Antonio is still active. People who know ISSN know Jose. He kind of runs the show over there, and he's written some cool stuff on actually changing the shape of muscle and a really cool article on hyperplasia, which most probably happens in humans. Mm. But the problem with, of course, trying to figure that out in humans is you can't um, probably ethically, at least, take out a muscle and count the fibers, which is okay. something you could do ethically, so to speak, in cats okay. or in rats or in whale. So in this particular study, they train these cats to do wrist flexion against the load. So there's a there's a, um, a pulley system here. You can see the loads over here. Uh-huh. So they would do a wrist flexion against this pulley system for a food reward. Hmm. Um, in this case, they found after a year of training, there was like a 9% increase in fiber number um, in the flexor carpionaris muscle, so one of the wrist flexor muscles in the forearm. Huh. Um, the other study, and this is, this is, this is one that people talk, Dante Trudell talked a bit. This is the stretch overload model with quail. Yes. Um, in this particular way they did it, gone a lot of these, they put this cuff around the wing and sorry, that's covered up, but they, this is a weighted cuff so they can increase the weight on this cuff and this pulls the wing down. Mm-hmm. Um, I always talked about the equivalent in a human would be like holding a heavy dumbbell, like strapping a dumbbell to your hand. So you're holding like a 40, 50, 60 pound dumbbell all day long and it's just hmm. pulling your arm down and they measure the anterior latissimus dorsi muscle, but it's basically equivalent to looking at the upper part of the trap, right? Okay. Yeah. And see how much your traps grow. Uh, and that's the study Jose did. He did a progressive overload study, giving the animals a break um, in between days when they would progressively add weight. And he saw like a, it was like a 300% increase in, in, in uh, muscle mass in the course of one month. Wow. It's ridiculous. Yeah. An increase in number of fiber. And this was this cool study where the fibers, the initially the increase in muscle mass. So they had groups of cohorts of animals thing you can't do in humans. So w- the first group got trained for a week and they looked at the muscles, what happened to the weight of that muscle, the fiber sizes. And then they let the next group was tra- they trained two weeks. That's when they ended their, their training, so to speak. And then went to three weeks and four weeks. So they could see what was happening to both the muscle weight over time and the fiber size over time. Yeah. And the muscle weight, so the muscle mass, kept on growing over the course of the month. The fiber size initially was producing that growth. growth, And then later on, in the latter half of the study, the fiber started getting smaller. Hmm. And this is what you see in some human studies where you have humans that are bodybuilders that are 
have large muscles, but they have normal fiber sizes, mm-hmm. which probably reflects what we saw happening in this animal study, which you, you can't do that in humans. You know, just let's take the humans and like you're going to train your triceps, let's say, and you know, who wants to be the, you're going to get randomly assigned to the group who loses his triceps after one <laughs> month of training. Yeah. So we can count the fibers and just, it just doesn't happen. But this, this stuff that animal models will allow us to do. And, and it's important, I think, to, um, to recognize this gives us insight as to what might be going on. It gives us some evidence to, to support the assertion that when we see large muscles in bodybuilders who have been training for years who have normally sized fibers mm-hmm. that, that probably has to do with what we saw in this quail study. So the muscle kept on growing, but the fibers got bigger and then got smaller. So there's more fibers. You can't have fibers that are getting smaller and your muscles getting bigger unless the number of fibers is getting bigger. Yeah. Right? And there wasn't more water. There wasn't swelling, that sort of thing. That actually goes down after the first little while of the training or the, of the stimulus. So it tells us that that's an adaptation. And I explained this in previous podcast. That would make kind of make sense when we think about what muscle has to do energetically when it's undergoing like a high volume resistance training test, which is kind of like what the, this is a 24 7 stress for these birds, constant being stressed. Um, so that's this quail study, and that you see massive, massive growth here. It's way beyond what we would ever do in a human, yeah. um, but we see a phenomenon there that matches what we've seen in cross sectional studies with humans, bodybuilders with big muscles and average size fibers versus. Um, untrained people who have smaller muscles but the same size fibers. Yeah. Those bodybuilders probably didn't start off with really small fibers and they spent 10 years training to make their muscles larger than average by like 50% and their fibers average size. Yeah. They probably got some muscle growth in the fibers, some hypertrophy, technically speaking, in the fibers, the fibers grew. And then over the course of time, the continued growth they got was likely due to hyperplasia. Yeah, that makes sense. Measure that directly. Yeah. So this last one here is a compensatory hypertrophy, synergistic ablation, they call it too. Um, so here we've got the gastrocnemius, the soleus, and the plantaris. So humans have a plantaris. Not everyone does, but it's really small if you do. Sometimes people have it on one leg, not on the other. Hmm. Um, but the main calf muscle is the gastroc and the soleus. Um, but in rats, we've got this plantaris. So you can take out the gastroc and leave the soleus and plantaris in, um, uh, left over. Or you can take both the soleus and gastroc off and out and just take the plantaris. Mm. The interesting about the plantaris is it's a mixed muscle fiber type. Mm-hmm. So you can you can look at the the, uh, the importance or the differences in terms of fiber type on the growth response. The soleus is like in a rat is like ninety percent type one. Hardly a muscle in humans that's like that. Really, I mean, there will be individuals. Yeah, there'll be individuals who are very in, endurance. They're, they're gifted for endurance running. You'll see this. Yeah. Typically, those biopsies are, are taken after they've also been doing endurance training for a long time. But having more type 1 fibers is going to give you a greater um, propensity for being good in endurance type training. But yeah. in rodents, we see this, especially in rats, um, that the gastroc, there's two heads of the gastroc, and they differ a little bit in terms of their fiber type percentage. Red versus white comes from whole notion, some background information. So people talk still about red versus white fibers, mm-hmm. right? Or red muscle versus white muscle. Well, the soleus is a very red muscle um, because it's got like lots of myoglobin in it. It's got lots of capillaries, so it's going to be a lot of blood if you take that muscle out and look at it. 
Whereas you actually got a white and a red gastrocnemius. You can see visibly when you, if you strip away the skin, you look at those muscles, the two heads of that muscle in a rat, one is white and one is red. It's kind of a pinkish and a, and a, and a more whitish color. So that's where those, that nomenclature comes from originally was from the rodent research before you can't take the whole muscle out in human. When a rat, you can, you can take it out and weigh it, you know, and you can analyze and count the number of fibers to look at the possibility of hyperplasia. Yeah. Um, and you've got these kind of cool situations where you've got muscles that are almost all of one fiber type. So you can see how things differ there. You had a question. I think you're going to say something to interrupt. No, no. Okay. I, I just said, yeah, so I was, this just, is a, I was this just kind of listening along. Yeah. So this is a, a, um, a chart from a, a nice review. It's a bit old, but these models, been, these models been used like this was in 1990 when this publication came out. So, more than 30 years ago, and these models have been used for decades before that. Yeah. So they kind of compared strength training versus the stretch hypertrophy, which is the quails, to compensatory hypertrophy or synergistic ablation, to exercise-induced models like this or this one. This one's a little bit different because these aren't voluntary contractions. Mm. And you see in terms of the – he calls it the response topography here that you see the same sort of adaptations in these animal models in terms of fiber type changes, in terms of the relative amount of growth that you see in humans. So you're getting, you're getting a similar type of effect. You're not seeing the animals like they're getting like two or three times the muscle growth when they're undergoing the same kind of stimulus. The thing that's interesting is that um, we can't really do stretch hypertrophy in humans. Um, and, when compensatory hypertrophy is compared to ex- resistance exercise in humans, it's you get a more much more robust growth response. Hmm. So it's pretty tremendous. So fifty to one hundred percent increase in muscle enlargement or muscle mass, just weighing the wet muscle here in this case. Um, so, except there's a nifty little study that I may have I know I've mentioned here a couple of times. I think is really cool. So at this point, we didn't know we didn't have anything to that was comparable in humans in terms of compensatory hypertrophy. So this, of course, again, you're taking out the gastroc or the and or the soleus. You're looking at what's left and look at the extent of growth you get in those muscles. Right. About a fifty to one hundred percent growth um, over the course of months, right? And pretty much after three or four months, you're getting things have plateaued off. And what's worth knowing here, I don't think I mentioned this. What happens in these animals, they, they cut they cut the, um, the insertion connections here, so they cut the Achilles tendon or, or the large part of it that connects these two muscle um, muscle heads to the Achilles tendon. Yeah, yeah. And then the animals recover for a few days, and then they just walk around, and they regain normal locomotion. So their activity becomes the same. Hmm. So the overload isn't from lifting. It's from walking around all the time. Yeah. Um, and they just have much less muscle mass, but, they're, but they have an adaptation that compensates – for the missing um, muscle mass, and they get hypertrophy. They get muscle growth. And so you actually get some hyperplasia there, but they just call it compensatory hypertrophy. Hmm. Um, so, so we've got this very cool study that I, I found a couple of years ago. I was so excited when I found this. So, again, um, the remaining muscle grows 50 to 100% when we do this compensatory hypertrophy, which you're not going to do. You're not going to cut muscles in humans and see what happens to the remaining muscle, like cut your gastroc and see how much your soleus grows. Yeah, but people sometimes have Achilles tendon ruptures. Yes, right? they do. And one way that you can repair that is take the flexor hallucis longus muscle. So that's that's the muscle that flexes your toe. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bitty, itty, like normally a little itty bitty muscle here. It's not very big that comes under your medial malleolus here and goes down. So 
to your big toe. You're kidding me. Flex your big toe. Huh. Yeah. I never knew that. It's just fascinating yep. that it has it's, that it's, level yeah, of circuitry that runs down. I've heard that the foot oh, is yeah. the most complex, one of the most complex parts of the body. Yeah, I mean, the hand is is even more complex, but yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. it's important. You know, you kind of run, you, a lot of the power is developed off the ball of your foot, you know. So right. this, this muscle is here to keep your keep your, your big toe, your uh, your hallux, um, hallucis longus referring to. This is just the there's the hallucis brevis muscle too. So this is the long of the muscles. So this, so what they do then in the case where your Achilles, um, where, where this muscle has been, uh, where your Achilles has been, been torn through an accident, right? Mm-hmm. Is they basically, they, they kind of sew the two, this, this end tendon together. And then they attach, they cut the, the normal attachment here in the, in the hallucis longus. And then they attach that at the Achilles. Oh. So basically, what we have is this small muscle that has to take over for this muscle mass, which is now not connected. It right. is sort of partially, right? but we've got a very, very similar situation to when you've done the clipping here yep. experimentally, because here we have a situation where there was, a, um, there was an injury. So now we got a ton of overload on this flexor hallucis longus muscle. Hmm. And in this particular study... Um, this was just a follow-up study. And what they did is they compared the good leg. So there's no people didn't have, they didn't have bilateral Achilles tears, which is one, one side. So they compared the good leg and these, they're, they're walking basically normally. They did some muscle strength tests as well. Kind of bypassed that. Those details aren't really important for this talk, but, um, but they found on average when they compared the good, the normal size flexor lucis longus at its normal size, with the one that had been used to compensate for the torn Achilles, about a 52% increase in muscle size. Okay. Um, and the max was 104%. And here's an MRI showing this. Yeah. And I circled this already. So here's the good side, flexus longus. And here, this is a you know, really shoddy circling, but this is how they do this. You, you, I've done, I did this for, this for my, my uh, dissertation. You do, you circle the muscle. Yeah, the computer will help you make a better circling process. So this was a doubling over a little bit over a hundred percent increase in flexor loosis. So that suggests very very coolly that this at least this model of compensatory hypertrophy in rodents, where we get about fifty to hundred percent, we've got the same response tomography as Timson referred to it um, in humans. When we have a similar situation hmm. where we have one muscle that has to take over and compensate for missing muscle mass otherwise. Now, let me ask you a question. I, I, yeah. Now, did we do the rat studies first, and that informed us to say, hey, we may be able to do this in humans? Do you know if that's... I would have to think that there was some... You know, they didn't just come up with that one day and say, hey, let's give this a try. I guess my, that's right. my question was, is, is this based off of having known through studies in animals? That this could be uh, something that could benefit us. Yeah. Well, in the an- animals, they just cut the muscles. They don't do any any tendon transfer. Okay. So this is a, a tendon transfer procedure that you know that that surgeons figured out and probably could go and look. I haven't looked in that literature. Go and look and see. I'm just I mean, wondering. You can see or just from? Yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if animal studies had informed us. In, in under, I'm just trying to see, you know, where yeah. have animal studies benefited us? Had they benefited us in this case? I see what you're showing us, though. You're basically showing us right. that we this is something that had occurred. A similar type thing was done in animals, 
and we got a similar result in humans is what you're telling that's a, me. That's a really good question because I think – imagine this. Imagine we, we do this – we tr- attempt – we know – we call it compensatory hypertrophy because there is a compensation. But yeah. imagine there was no compensation. Imagine okay. we just – what happened was the animals were just – they were just permanently debilitated. Yeah. Right? And they never recovered. They never – the normal gait was never restored. And you didn't see any growth in the remaining muscle. So you cut the gastroc and the, neither the soleus can plantaris can ever take over. It never grows again. Yeah. Or you try cutting the soleus. Like no combination. You see any compensation in terms of muscle growth to make up for the, the muscle that's been um, where the tenotomy has occurred, where the tendon's been cut. Yeah. Then I, I almost 100% positive that the smart researchers, because we pay attention to the animal literature, right? They would have said, well – that's probably it would probably be a silly thing to try in humans um, because the animal research suggests there's no compensation. So Thank if we you. tried yeah. this tendon transfer and hope that the flexor hallucis longus would then grow, which it does, but the animal research says that the rodents and rodents are they're they're generally they're hardier than humans, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. kind of the concern is that they can handle shit that we can't handle. Mm. Um, and that's you know probably true in some cases. It's just kind of seen they're just just a general observation. They're just pretty hardy. You know, they, they do stuff. Some of it's, I won't even say what it is because it's kind of, but animals will do things that, you know, like what's, what's the movie Scott where, um, these guys, like they're on a, on some sort of a a flight over Antarctica or, or, (laughs) and the flight, the, and they, they, the, the plane goes down and they end up like becoming cannibals. And I know what you're talking about. was like the soccer team or something. Yeah, something like yeah, that. So yeah. you're like, holy shit, like people are crazy. Animals do that kind of stuff. Like, they adapt. They they're adapt. capable of that. Yeah. They adapt. Like, And they're they're willing to do things that you, we think of as very animalistic. It's kind of what the term comes from. <laughs> yeah. So they're really freaking hardy. Yeah. So if people, if, if the research had shown that animals being re- as resilient as they are, as hardy as they are, they didn't have compensation to this type of, of attempts. And I'm guessing the surgeons would have thought, you know, because you, you have to get these things um, approved initially in some way, shape, or form. There's research that usually has happened before, unless there was some rogue um, surgeon. You know, again, I haven't looked into this, into the um, the origin story of tendon transfers to see what they what they yeah. did, especially in terms of this. This is different than, for instance, the tendon transfer in the hand. Okay, because right? they do hand, hand tendon transfers too um, for people who've had injuries from car wrecks or what have you. Yeah, this one's a continuous loading. So they, if, if, you know, uh, if you're going to try to justify this thing and you say, we know that when you do a, with the compensatory hypertrophy model that animals do compensate with when their muscle mass is missing, blah, 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 that gives us reason to believe that there's, there's potential for success in these individuals if we try this particular tendon transfer. The thing I was getting ready to mention is this flexor loses long and longest tendon. It doesn't have to be transplanted very far. It's, okay. it's, real, it's yeah. in very close proximity to where the tendon that was is cut or which which has been been um, you know disrupted by the injury is so it's the it's kind of the logical one to choose because of that yeah it is so I see that. yeah so this so this is really I'm glad you I'm so glad you asked this because the animal research informs us that we have some potential success to be had here in trying this tendon transfer procedure which is now done I think there was like eight or ten. Um, subject so to speak this is um this is just sort of a cross-sectional um case report basically yeah um but yeah if if the animal research suggests that the muscle just doesn't have the plasticity which we now know it does 
then you couldn't have convinced a, um, a human subjects committee that this is a viable study to do because they'd say, no, you're not going to do that. Like you make them suffer through the study and then their muscles never going to recover. And they're, they're just going to be, you're just going to put them through un, unnecessary pain and suffering. Yeah. So, I, I just figured I'd ask that, but uh, yeah. yeah. What else we no, got here? Great question. I'm excited to see where we go with this next. Yeah. Okay. So this is from uh, um, what I, I put this together for this article I wrote for John Meadow site. So people can find this as, if they go in there and just look at my name, they can. Um, so if we look at animals versus humans, so on, with, this is sort of a scale of changes in muscle size. Kind of Here's our baseline. You can go atrophy. Um, there's various muscles there. I think this are just muscles of muscle growth we went into. There's muscles of atrophy that humans and animals have, and those are comparable too. And then if we look at what happens in terms of muscle growth um, on a scale of like 50 to 200, and this would be actually 200 plus percent. We had more than 200 percent in that one study that Jose Antonio did. Okay. Um, we've got sort of this this scale um, where bodybuilding training um, gives us slow gains, and if you look at you know someone who starts off at like 160 pounds and they make it to 260 or something like that, they may have doubled their muscle mass, right? Yeah. Um, we're in this 50 to 100 percent range with compensatory hypertrophy with animals, right? Resistance training with animals matches what we see with humans, right? Resistance training in the short term matches the rate of growth we see in humans. We've got now this, this cool case study with the tendon transfer mm -hmm. where the compensatory hypertrophy, basically what that was in animals was equivalent to what you see in, in, in humans, 50 to hundred percent. The numbers matched really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and of course there's various things that play a role here. And this is important too: supplements, diet, training, um, uh, and lifestyle and genetics. I should have probably written this in here, add this <laughs> genetics is huge. I want to make this, um, make this point too. Looks really good. Looks like a child just scribbled with crayon. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. That's okay. I was going to give you credit child, for yeah. trying. You get credit for yeah. trying. Hey, that's not bad. That's, you know, yeah. spell with the mouse. This is what happens when you do like electronic signature signing, you know, and you, just, Oh like, God. Yeah. It always looks ridiculous. Yeah. Redo, redo, redo. Oh, I, can count legally. I guess this is good. So, enough. you know, e E-STEM training, you can do E-STEM training in both animals and humans. I did this actually for my um, for my dissertation. We train humans with electrical stimulation, at least in the short term, like an eight-week window. Okay. You get about double the rate of muscle growth when you train with E-STEM. Damn. And you get, yeah, um, with, an electro, with an isokinetic device um, because you, you're producing a contraction in a way that your nervous system can't. You're overriding the normal neural inhibition during eccentric contractions. And when you're in an isokinetic machine, the muscle forces that eccentric connection, contraction at whatever speed you've set it up to do that. Yeah. And there's no inhibition to reduce the force, the amount of muscle that's activated. So the forces are just sky high. They're beyond, they can be depending on how much stim you use, how much juice you have coming out of the machine. Yeah. They can be higher than what you can physically produce voluntarily with a maximum voluntary effort. And you're using less muscle to do that because you're not fully turning on the muscle with all the stim you could probably would end up injuring someone if you tried to do that. I've never gone that far, even with myself, because I'm like, nah, that's not smart. <laughs> um, that's why the nervous system has this built-in inhibition anyway. But you can probably you can get more that way. And this is what, oh, what's the name of the device? Um, a lot of people were using, especially a couple of years ago. Uh, Dexter Jackson used it. Oh, the, the newbie Venice. machine. The newbie machines, yeah. So yeah. that's one form of e-stim training people have been adding. You get a different, you get a, um, a non-physiological e-stim contraction pattern that's going to favor 
activation of motor units during the eccentric mm-hmm. that you might not normally activate um, literally maybe at all with a given free weight. Mm-hmm. And it cr- you create more massive amount of muscle damage if you do this without having um, uh, familiarized the muscle to that. So you, so you get sort of a repeated bout effect. You can really you can destroy the muscle with mm-hmm. E-STEM, really damaging. So that tells you how novel and powerful the stimulus is. So E-STEM training, that's a whole other topic we're going into. But the main point here is that animals, this animal research, all this stuff matches really well. We have a response topography that's really, really similar to humans. So there's something to say there for using animals where you can take out the whole muscle and you can count the fibers and you can do things that you just can't do in humans. Yeah. Um, and there's other advantages there too, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit too. So um, some more on animal models. People want to read this. Are you a man or a mouse? This, this, um, this article that I wrote back in, in 2013 for John, and this is where this figure comes from. Great site. He gave me permission. I, yeah, yeah, awesome site. Still great stuff. On I there. had signed and up there to get your, your How to Skin a Bodybuilder articles, part one and two. Yeah, yep, yep. I've got like, I think 13, 14 articles on there. That's where the um, the Carnitine article is too. Oh, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that monster two-parter not long ago, just this last year. Last year in 2022. So, um, so a little bit more, I, I thought about, do I want to open the can of <laughs> drugs? Yeah. I think we both were saying like that, that this idea that rats don't, they don't That's apply right. to humans or animals don't apply to humans. Um, there, it, there are some differences. So this is a really cool figure. Um, uh, this comes from, um, a publication by Shanks at all 2009. They credit James Harris. Um, for this, so you can find this figure there in, in this. If everyone wants the the original studies, I can send those to you. Um, I really get asked for those. Every, every once in a while, someone asks for a study, and it, it wasn't actually a study I was talking about. It was a hypothetical, but if you want okay. this, I can always send these. So this is a pretty cool um, figure that's really, really interesting. And these this is looking at bioavailability. And uh, so here is the animal bioavailability from 0 to 100%. Mm-hmm. For various drugs that were under study, compared to human bioavailability, okay. and they just grouped this into primates, so um, monkeys, macaques, that kind of thing, rodents, mainly mice and rats. I have to throw hamsters in there, and then dogs. And if there was equivalent bioavailability, so that's really important for a drug, right? Take mm-hmm. 100 milligrams. How much of it actually is bioavailable? have its its pharmacodynamic actions yeah. talking about one one aspect of pharmacokinetics what the body does with the drug and if it's a one if it's a one-to-one a hundred percent for both we would be up here 100 percent for the rodent in this case i'm certainly green ones so that's rodents 100 percent for humans and then the line of identity would be here be a straight line and for some drugs you know, this this could be maybe where curcumin is if it hasn't been modified in some way. Curcumin is very poorly bioavailable hmm. in terms of what gets into the bloodstream, although it has probably has some of its actions on the microbiome. So we've got for some drugs a very similar bioavailability, right? We look at those that are sort of centered around this line of identity, but then you're going to have some drugs like this one, where it was eighty plus percent bioavailable in humans on average. And then in rodents, it's like whatever, 2% bioavailable, hmm. nothing, right? And sometimes it can be the opposite. So that's the thing that needs to be examined. When we have a rodent study, 
and sometimes people don't look at these. Even this is this can be a tough part. I sometimes this happened. It's happened with the melatonin topic, for instance. I noticed that it seemed like a lot of reviews were missing on missing uh, picking up on and discussing important points that I saw discussed in other reviews. Okay. How can they're not mentioning this? So people aren't going back and like doing the full review. And what ends up happening with a topic like that that's been discussed ad nauseum. And I see this, I see, I, I see even sometimes students being taught this in universities that old studies that are older than like, you know, five years, you can't cite those for your, for a review article. Oh, really? Like, like when you write something. Yeah. Like, you, like not at all. Even if you want to provide historical perspective, they just don't want any references. Just like you have to ignore the past. Huh. Okay. Basically. And that, that is, that is a fatal flaw as far as I'm concerned. Because what I think happens in looking at just this phenomenon where reviews seem to miss what other reviews have caught up caught on, is if you don't go back and look at what have, what has previously been done, then you're missing some very important, very important factors. Yeah. And literally, like very basic phenomena cannot be picked up on. So, um, yeah. So that was we talked about that with melatonin. So th- this is just one feature where sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. So if you if you want to say that. Someone could look at this and say, well, look, there's really no correlation here, right? That's If you correlated all of these points, it's just a pure, basically a random scatter. There's no there's no um, clustering of these points around this line of identity, which, which suggests that there's a Pearson product moment or other correlation um, between the animal bioavailability of all these different species and the human bioavailability. Hmm. So, you, so someone could say then... There's no application in terms of bioavailability. We can't count on animal animal data whatsoever to reflect human data. Yeah, yeah. Because looking at as the whole, that's that's true. If you look at this particular statistic, but I re- refer people to look up the book "How to Lie with Statistics." <laughs> this is one way you can lie with statistics. There's a whole book. That's the title of the book. But in some cases, for some drugs, you've got very very similar bioavailability. In those cases, then the animal data is very relevant. So let's go back here to even this this quail idea. It's like you, you can't do this. And the extent of hypertrophy and muscle growth, here's the stretch overload, right? Right. You get like 200% increase in muscle size in a matter of months. There's nothing you can do with humans that, that you know you could get approval for that would do that. And who knows? Probably two. With humans, if you because you really just have your your clavicle connecting your shoulder girdle to your to your spinal column, it's actually yeah. your rib cage, right? Um, you probably would like end up like dislocating or subluxing your spin and or separating your shoulder if you tried to like lug a fifty or sixty pound dumbbell around for a couple <laughs> months, like, constantly hanging. Yeah, yeah. You know, like even you're sitting at your desk, like you got to type with one hand because that thing's constantly hanging with these bird, birds. So you just couldn't do that. But what we did get, as I noted with this, that I talked about the study with Jose Antonio, we had this really cool phenomenon where the fibers got bigger as the muscle got bigger and the fibers got smaller as the muscle continued to grow. Ha! Mm-hmm. Huh. That explains something we see in humans where we can't take out muscles and we can't t- count all the fibers, where we see humans with big muscles and average size fibers. Maybe the same thing happens in humans. So even you look at this this one aspect, this one feature of response topography, topography where you've got muscle growth that way exceeds anything we've seen in humans, there still was a phenomenology behind that where the fibers got bigger and they got smaller mm-hmm. as the adaptation proceeded over time that explains something when we see, we look cross-sectionally 
at bodybuilders with average size fibers and big muscles. Hmm. So if you throw the bit, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, if you just generalize in that way, and those are some examples from the area of, of re- exercise science and muscle biology, muscle physiology, and um, and bodybuilding, basically, that are hmm. pretty cool. What do I got now? Oh, here's another people. I just kind of refer people. This is the title of a, a paper that was I thought was pretty cool. Um, so there's some problems too if you look uh, at systematic reviews. So this is sort of review um, of reviews that. There's can be issues that you've got some advantages, and I'm sort of going to kind of generalize. It's a huge review. Um, you've got some advantages, which you talked about the, with the with the animals, um, but sometimes that leads to um, uh, a little bit of sloppiness in terms of how the, the science gets done. Um, one thing I notice just in uh, and this is a, you can see this across science is that the more the harder the science, let's say, so physics is a very hard science. Okay. Right. Either the either the particle exists or it doesn't. Either you measured it or it didn't. And if you're talking about like particle physics, like a photon's a photon's a photon. Like that's not true of humans. Like a human's not a human is not a human. We've got massive bio bio individuality here. Whereas in in physics, which is kind of the hardest of all sciences, um, you don't even, they don't even worry about statistics. In lots of cases, right? hmm. you don't need to unless you're unless you're getting into. Um, uh, yeah, then you're, if you're getting into um, all sorts of uh, theoretical physics, then you've got a different story. But for instance, um, one of the things that was brought up, if you look at toxicology, the way that animals handle particular toxins compared to humans, it can be very, very species specific. Um, so rodents, for instance, they can handle a lot more toxins, even when you relativize it to body surface area, which I didn't mention, I should have thrown that in here, but um, you can find that I've mentioned this repeatedly over and over again. You just can't say if you give one gram per kilogram to a rodent, that's the same as one gram per kilogram for a, a human. Because metabolism varies. Typically, people use use body surface area because there's a relationship between body surface area, which reflects size, but not just mass, and a rate of metabolism. So there are ratios that can be used for comparing mice versus rats versus humans or hamsters versus humans or dogs versus humans. Um, so in dogs, even when you do that relativization, toxicology can be very, very different, right? Hmm. Um, experimental conditions in humans can be, um, can do, kind of distort the, uh, the outcomes. So you can use really high doses can do things that just wouldn't be ethical. Um, sure. um, in humans, they don't mimic the human scenario. So, you know, you overload a rat and, you know, feed them like, you know, what would be the equivalent of like one pound of, um, you know, some supplement per day and they get cancer after a year. It's like, yeah, but like, no one's going to eat like one pound of caffeine a day <laughs> right. or, 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 you know, 500 milligrams of caffeine a day. So it's nice in that you're, you're getting in ex- like in an extreme circumstance. We push this to the very limit and these animals end up with this toxicological profile mm-hmm. but it really doesn't have relevance to what the average person is going to do but it's a nice thing to know it's not a benign substance there are some yeah. side effects toxicological issues yeah. um thing i mentioned before methodological quality so sample size like, like in, in a human study you need to do what's called a power analysis so you figure out okay what is a meaningful difference 
when we get when we have X condition for one group versus the placebo group or the control group. Right. You know, is it is it is twenty percent more muscle mass or fifty percent more muscle mass important? Okay, cool. So if you need, if you want to have you know, just a, a, a relatively good chance, and there's sort of numbers that you can use to, that are sort of agreed upon of detecting such a difference in your um, in your experiment, then you need to factor in how variable your you typically how variable um, the response is, so the standard deviation of response, and also how robust your response is. So you want to have, for instance, a training um, protocol that produces muscle growth in the first place, right? So if you want to see something that provides, that would potentially increase muscle growth, then you have to have something that produces muscle growth, right? So that has to be factored in and you can run this, this, this basic power now. It's a very simple thing to do, really, um, if you have data from having done these procedures in your lab. And then you say, okay... I want to have. I don't want to have an underpowered study, so I need to have. Should I need to have twenty people in my study hmm. because we have massive variability and we don't have a great training response, yeah. which is the problem, for instance, with trained individuals. So shit, we're going to have to in order. We have to have a long study, a six month long study, in trained individuals who have at least a year worth of training. Let's say, which is kind of a, a common starting point. Shit, we're going to have to have a huge study. Is that is that feasible? Yeah. Um, on the other hand. When you've got animals, what kind of happens is like, well, they're all from the same litter. They're basically, they're very, very genetically homogeneous. Um, they all look the same. Like they actually do have personalities to some degree. Like people work with rats, they, they kind of get to know which one's which. Yeah. Give them names sometimes, that sort of thing. But they're very, very similar. So they're, they're like family members or even closer. Hmm. Right. And they're all the same sex. You don't have a, you don't have gender or sex issues and you can control their conditions control their feed you control everything that's going on in especially in terms of what condition they get whether they're the trained group or the non-trained group where they get the supplement don't get the supplement or what have you so what that means of course is that that's really really powerful because you don't have a huge variability um and if you have a, if you can do things with animals that like the compensatory hypertrophy you get this robust response and you get 50 100 muscle growth in a matter of a couple of months that's awesome yeah. So then you can see if something matters. You do run into a potential ceiling effect. Maybe you're turning on muscle mass, muscle growth so, so tremendously, it doesn't matter what you do, right? It's going to happen. And that actually does. And I'll come back to that in just a second. So in animal research, sometimes what happens is they don't do power analyses. They're like, why would they need to? They know they have a robust response. They know they have minimal variability. They got all the features they need that people pick up on things. So they do... They do six animals, hmm. you know, or they do 10 animals. Um, a lot of good studies, they do money more, but that tends to be an issue because animal researchers, they don't do that necessarily because they, they've been, for instance, doing studies where they didn't have to do it and get away with it. So what ends up happening is they have underpowered studies. If someone goes back, this is what this, this research review did. They went back and looked and said, yeah, well, you didn't find a difference because you had an underpowered study. You didn't have enough 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 samples. It'd be like going out and saying, um, you know, I want to find out if men are on average taller than women. Okay. And you just you just go out and you look at the people who happen to walk past your driveway, right? Yeah. And you took, yeah. pick two men and two women and two men. And you end up picking two two short guys and two tall women. Like, okay, there we go. Women are taller than men, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, on average it's not true. But you did you did your sample size wasn't big enough. 
right? And you have too much variability because there's going to be lots of women there taller than men. There's lots of overlap. So interestingly enough, I was going to say um, uh, in, in the context of compensatory hypertrophy, which is very interesting, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, it is a very robust response. Yeah. And you can look up a guy named Goldberg. We talked about this, I think, in the previous podcast. We've talked you about Goldberg. You can literally, yeah, you take out, you, 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 you streptozotus in and you kill off the beta cells in the pancreas so there's no insulin. Yeah. The muscle grows just the same, compensatory hypertrophy. You take out their thyroid gland. You got no thyroid. It's important for metabolism, right? right. It doesn't matter. You get the same rate of muscle growth. You take out their pituitary. So now they're missing, missing thyroid. Now they're missing growth hormone. Now they're missing testosterone. You got the same rate of muscle growth. It doesn't matter. You take out all those things. <laughs> you take out the thyroid. You take out insulin. You take out growth hormone. You take out testosterone. Kind of important from a body perspective. And the muscle still grows just the same. Hmm. Because, and we, of course, we don't have, they didn't have, they don't have the, the tendon transfer studies in, in, um, in humans where they, where they found some people who were missing their pituitaries and right, they right. took them off their thyroid medication and they gave them diabetes and let them go without insulin. But you can do this with animals and you see their same rate of muscle growth. So that's an interesting factor, right? If you look at that, you'd say, well, insulin doesn't matter for muscle growth, which we know from tons of other things. Testosterone doesn't matter for muscle growth. Yes, it does. We know this, right? You look at the other studies, but if you look at that body of literature, those things, you're like, okay, this animal model, it sucks. Like it doesn't tell us shit because it doesn't tell us about those important hormonal factors that are important for muscle growth. Yeah. Well, don't throw the baby out with bathwater. It is important because it actually matches in terms of the response in terms of muscle growth over time. It does match really well with humans. We know this from the tendon transfer thing. So there's things to take, but you just have to take it with a grain of salt, the appropriately sized grain of salt. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then the last thing, uh, um, I think I mentioned this in maybe the next slide, you can come up with transgenic animals. Um, you've got this genetic homogeneity. Um, so you can make animals, you know, like animal models of obesity where they're missing the, the leptin gene or they're missing the, the, the gene or they have a defective gene for the leptin receptor, right? And those, okay. they're just – so, so you, I mean, you've got some people. There's like a – I think a family was from France that lacked the leptin receptor and they were very obese. But, you know, if you really want to say – um, okay, is leptin important for this, that, or the other? She's a transgenic model. Like you completely wipe the effect, the impact of leptin. Yeah, we can't do that in humans, right? Mm. You can't. You don't. You're not going to find people to do those sorts of things. Um, and uh, you know, someone who you really, if someone did lack in leptin and you knew this, well, then the ethical thing would be to start treating that lack of leptin for their own health purposes, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. So and on the other side, you've got this human genetic diversity. So there's an advantage there and you can, you can have a very detailed, like sort of non-physiological, pathological way of observing the impact of specific genes or specific hormones or specific proteins on any type of physiological um, response or adaptation. And then you can take some information for that, but no, it doesn't, you can't say that you know, leptin is all that matters for human obesity. That's, of course, not true. But you do know that if leptin isn't working, those animals are very obese. <laughs> they're just little, they're just round balls of fat, basically. Yeah. Both the OB, OB, and the DB, DB mice. So, um, so a couple of last things, general thoughts. Um, uh, I've mentioned this already. Animals are, uh, you know, the inbred species with genetic 
Sorry about the spelling issue there. Just typed this up like an hour ago. <laughs> and we get wide genetic variability in humans. Um, uh, this is worth knowing too or mentioning. The, there's a hierarchy of scientific evidence. So, you know, you can have case reports, you know, individual observations mm-hmm. that, you know, you'll see which are, were, can be very, very valuable. This is, this is where some people would put, you know, bro science to some degree, hmm. bro anecdotal reports, right? Okay. Um, this is what I see. I, when I think of bro science, I think of something where someone has said, this is what I see and here's my scientific explanation for it. And the science is just completely made up and doesn't match anything it's yeah. actually scientific. It doesn't match anything you learn in school or in the, finding the scientific literature. They're just making up bullshit to make themselves sound more intelligent or smarter or sell some sort of product or whatever. Um, but then we have animal trials and in vitro studies. We didn't talk about these in vitro studies or, or, or things in a um, the cell culture. Cross-sectional studies. Now we're talking about humans. Case control studies where we sort of isolate two different populations of people and compare one to another. So different populations of people in different um, in different countries, or or people with the same. Look at Japanese people who are, have grown up a first generation. They grew up in the U.S. eating a U.S. diet versus Japanese people who are living in Japan. Mm-hmm. What's the impact on um, cardiovascular disease, for instance? And there's cohort studies. You follow people. The Framingham study, that sort of thing, where you follow cohorts of people and watch what happens to cardiovascular risk. Watch what happens to various things. How much? How important is is exercise over the lifespan in terms of preventing the risk of um, hip fractures in women, something like that, right? What kind mm-hmm. of exercise? Then we have our randomized controlled trials, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, although those are important. And then you usually see at the tip-top here the meta-analyses and the systemic reviews. Mm-hmm. And I do think these are, these are obviously super important. And the thing that I come back to is that um, – we, these are telling us about what the kind of the purpose of science is, is can we take a phenomenon studied in a population, which we know is relatively homogeneous, and say with statistical reasonable um, uh, probability that if we give this supplement or we have this um, condition that we're going to have this particular effect or this particular outcome or this elevated risk factor, what have you, um, under those circumstances. And that's something that basically reflects the generalizability with which we can, that comes from the science that we're going to see this particular effect. This thing's going to happen. Okay. So yeah. we know you could look at a meta-analysis that says resistance training increases muscle growth, right? By whatever. And you see that's a statistical, statistically significant finding. And we see that over the studies and we see it in reviews and what have you. But there are some people who don't, who are non-responders, right? Yeah. And there are some people who are hyper-responders. So these individual control, randomized controlled studies where you see um, the individual data, and I talked about this here and I talked about this in my Why You Don't Look, look Like a Pro talk, mm-hmm. um, the genetic the variability is important. We can see that in these studies depending on how they report the data. And we can even see that here in these case control reports. We can see this in individuals. And any coaches out there, Scott, you know this as well as anybody, not all your clients are the same, right? Yeah. Some of some of them like let's say whatever Trenbolone is the is God's you know it's the holy grail, right? Works great. Other people nope, just fucks them up because they can't sleep, they can't recover, and they and they don't go anywhere. Right. That's so you've got these situations. So this this is the hierarchy of scientific evidence 
um, but there are also other ways of knowing things. So that's important to keep in, in mind. Um, there's the ethical issues, animals versus humans. Um, tests of outverse, a, adverse outcomes, like the LD50s, like how, what, what kind of a dose does it take to kill off 50% of a test population or test uh, test sample? We can't, we're not going to do that in humans, right? Mm-hmm. Mentioned muscle excision, taking out entire muscle mass, fiber counting. You can't do direct body composition in humans. You know, you can do a DEXA, do those sorts of things, but you can't actually tell someone how much body fat they have unless you kill them and do a chemical analysis, and that's not worth it. Um, so, and I mentioned this too, ease of data generation. You can do just you can you can bring animals in and do sorts of pilot studies, and you just get your subjects are right there; they're available. Mm-hmm. You just order them. Your animals show up at your at your they delivered to your door. They're delivered to your university. You go pick them up. And you're good to go, right? And mm-hmm. you can you can and they're expendable to some degree. I hate this, but this is sort of how things work. You do have to get research. Uh, you'd have to get approval to do things in the in the in the university setting, the research setting. Sure. Um, but humans require much more care and time dealing with human subjects. People that you know are sort of keyboard scientists, warriors who say, "Oh, you didn't have enough enough people," or you had the huge dropout rate. It is it is not easy to recruit subjects. You deal with so much crazy stuff. I bet doing that it's a massive output of energy, keeping people happy and motivating them, et cetera, et cetera. So you can get kind of a broad brush with the animal research. Some of it's applicable, some of it's not, depending on what you're studying. And you're getting more of the finer strokes on understanding these phenomena from human studies. Um, and then you need to look at the individual data points. Look what ha- happens to some people. Some people who recomp during studies, they go into training and they lose body fat and they gain muscle mass. Hmm. And other people don't gain any muscle mass. <laughs> they go nowhere. So you're still not getting everything when you're looking at the, at the statistical significance, uh, le- using the statistical significance lens that is typically used in randomized controlled, placebo-controlled, double-blinded studies because there are differences among individuals. And that's hmm. what matters for you is what works for you, even if the study says it doesn't or it does. Yeah. Happy New Year. <laughs> say hello. There's the, yeah. the whole crew, the whole pack. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's yep. Yeah, the Suki in the background. That's a little sorry, the Suki in the front here, a little Sukaroo. Yeah. My nugget. Sukaroo. And there's the Blitzy Boo, my Blitzy Bear, and this is the Foxy Owl. Foxy, Foxy in the back. Little happy fox. Yep. That's nice. With the waggy tail you can see. Is yeah. that a new picture? That's an older picture. I was looking. I have. I'm using my laptop. I have a bunch of pictures on my other computer. But this was in our truck camper. Oh, was, um, this is right before the pandemic. Actually, when I got stranded okay. there for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, yeah. they still look happy. They're still. They're still. They're still glad to be oh, there yeah. with you. You know. Oh, they, like, what they are we doing today, last. Dad? That was fun. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. All right. Well, listen. If you were to sum this it. up, Scott, if you were to sum this up in into the the elevator pitch, um. Are rat studies useless? I froze up for a little while there. Sorry. I quit the oh. came out of PowerPoint. Okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? Yep. Yep. All right. Only just a short blip. So the elevator pitch. How to, yes. how to summarize this. Yeah. Um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Animal research, there's 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 all sorts there's all sorts of utility for this, the things that just can't be done, and they give us insights that we otherwise couldn't have. 
like that that phenomenon of fibers being average size and muscles that are that are larger. You don't have hypertrophy, but you've got a larger muscle. So there's so much there, but you need to contextualize it. So there are, there are times when the animal research is is much less relevant, um, and there are times when it's very relevant. And it depends on what aspect, what feature of of um, physiology of ad- adapt or response to topography that you're concerned with. Hmm. And um, to generalize and just say that what was the how do it was phrased that animals don't apply animal studies don't apply to humans is just really an overgeneral overgeneralization that um is not true when stated in that fashion there very well can be some cases when you can like yeah this one doesn't really fit and some of that can be that the animal studies do apply to some humans some humans but they may not apply to you because you're an outlier in terms of that particular feature terms of that particular response um, or adaptation. So that's the thing to consider. And and you can always just read the studies and make your own mind up, but just to like, just throw that away. Like you're missing out, you know? Yeah. It's like, you're like the guys like, ah, I want to, I did, I looked at two women and two guys that walked past my driveway and all women are taller than men. I'm never going to date because I want a woman that's shorter than me and they're all taller. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Right. You just lost your whole, your whole relationship possibilities. Because you didn't look look a little bit closer into the into the data, and everyone has the ability to do that. You can find this stuff, as I say again and again, on Google Scholar, on PubMed. It's all available. It's it's, it's so available now. It's amazing. So um, don't undervalue your own own ability to scrutinize the research because you can average intelligence person can figure a lot of this stuff out if they're willing to try. You know, I should dig back, Scott, and see if we have, if I have the video still for the episode where you talked about learning how to read studies. I feel like we could Mm, mm re-release that same podcast because that was excellent. That was a good two plus years ago now, maybe four years ago even, you know, but I think that would be a, that would be a good one. That would be a fun one to go back over again, uh, just to talk about the basics Mm -hmm. about here's a study. Here are the parts of a study. This is this is this is what you can do with it. I think that a lot of people would get mm-hmm. a lot out of that. Yeah, and I did that. That was a topic on a I can't remember which one other podcast that I did like in the last year. Okay, yeah, I've done that topic a few times. Yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, you know, so it's out there. It's you, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink type of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, but but maybe somebody will will you know it'll perk somebody up. The thing yeah. is, I think, and we, this is our both guess, we don't know, like, there's, and I'm not going to call anybody out, but chances are, and this is this is the issue, this is kind of the crux of this, is that to some degree we have to have to sort of trust in someone, right? Someone's the expert, right? And, and you, you can't be an expert in everything. Like, I, I always use an example, like, I mean, unless you're an auto mechanic yourself, you got to take your car to someone. Maybe you can change your own oil and you can, you know, put new tires on or what have you, but eventually you're going to have to leave, let, let someone else be your, be your expert and make some decisions for you. And if your expert has told you something like, ah, that animal studies, they don't matter whatsoever. That's the thing to kind of watch out for, because that may be very true in a very specific instance. But the thing I would suggest people to do is to ask that expert for the evidence for that. And if they are truly the expert and they come up with that because they have you know, a very deep, a very deep insight into that particular area. 
then they should have that information on the top of their head. They should be able to give you an example or explain themselves really, really, really easily. Um, the, you know, the believe me just because I said so type of response is the one that's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll go look into it myself. Um, it's kind of like, like when you go into the car, the, the mechanic, you know, and, and they say they're, they will give you this estimate. It's like, why do we got to do that? And their answer doesn't make sense. It's like, okay, trust your intuition. Yeah. You know, and go get a second opinion. So second opinions are, are totally worth it in this area. Yeah. And it's funny. That's the exact reason that you don't really like to be called doctor. Dr. Scott Stevenson, because you, you, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people don't know that you don't want people to put you on that pedestal of being yeah. like just blindly trust. You would rather people ask yeah. those questions, which, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird thing. It's like the, the fan phenomenon or it's nice. It's good to have respect for people and it's good to know where Absolutely. they're coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, but but the doctor thing, it, it puts. I mean, I see this all the time. You've probably seen this with your clients. I see this with my clients and with friends who've gone in and they speak with Western physicians. And I'm not trying to bash on Western physicians. Just like with every profession, there's awesome trainers. Um, there's awesome barbers. There's awesome nail technicians. There's awesome mechanics. And there's some that aren't so great, right? Yeah. And there's some physicians. And this happens just because we have a mindset in our society with Western physicians. And I think just the term doctor that they have MD stands for the quote, the joke is minor deity, right? <laughs> these are gods and they're, and they aren't to be questions. And some doctors, they don't want to answer those questions and, and they can become very, um, some can, they just, they just tell you, they, they will give you the answer to these things. Yeah. So that is like, it's a very generalized perspective that I've noticed in, especially in that context with Western physicians and the doctor title that just, it's just part of our, our unconsciousness, I think. And we, we tend to just, when you see the doctor thing, it's like, oh, okay, this person knows more than me, you know? Yeah. And then they stop questioning that person. Like, no, 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 that's like, it should be the opposite. I've said a million times, it's like, ah, now you have a resource for information. Right. And if this person's going to be, is there a good teacher, which is hopefully why you're there to learn from them, now you can ask them questions. They should be able to tell you all sorts of stuff. Not the opposite. Like, it's just believe me thing. It's just the opposite of what it should be. It should be like, ah. Now I can pick your brain, you know, be nice. Don't, don't come up to someone in the gym and start asking them questions, right. Um, for half an hour, yeah. but yeah, you've got a resource in the, in the doctor person, but I avoid that just because most people who ask me stuff, they recognize that I, I can be a resource and the doctor thing. Generally it ends up working, working against, hmm. against what I'm trying to kind of work towards, which is openness of information and, and helping people learn for themselves. Right. Um, well, with all that said, Scott, I appreciate you taking the time to go over all this. Like I said, man, this is uh, something that I think you could specialize in this topic versus anybody else that we podcast with. So I'm grateful that that we do have you as that resource. Yeah, this is this is my gig, man. I look at the research and I try to make it understandable. So figuring out when the reason that's I mean, I've talked about that. Um, for instance, in the context of NSAIDs and various of my articles, yeah, I've, I've, I've brought out that you don't always see the same responses or adaptations in humans versus rats. You've got to have to be very careful for that. Careful yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's uh, numerous responses or numerous examples are popping in my head, but we'll save that. Um, so there are many cases where I brought that to the forefront. And so there's some truth in that, but not a black and white world, baby. Yeah. Unfortunately. 
All right, guys. Well, for another episode of Muscle Minds, go to byobbcoach.com and get Scott's book there, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, or you can find it over on Amazon. It's a great book. You can get the hardcover on Amazon. You get the ebook at byobbcoach.com. Um, of course, go to our great sponsors, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK. Um, they're having a New Year's thing where they have like 15% off the site. So for our live people who are watching here on uh, the Facebook group for Think Big Bodybuilding Media, you know, go take advantage of that right now. Otherwise, use our code THINK. Uh, helps to support our programming and you get a small discount with that. Also, Strom Sports Nutrition for those of you in the UK. And of course, supplementsource.ca for those of you in Canada. You get great deals that roll week to week. And they change all the time. Of course, thank you to everybody on Patreon. Appreciate you guys very much. And, and thank you to everybody who's watching live today. And Scott Stevenson, most of all, thank you to you. Uh, it has been a pleasure to, to have another year of podcasting. And I look forward to seeing what we do in the future, man. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. To, 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 to that, someone who might listen to this, I'm gonna, just going to laugh, but... 2023 is our year, Scott. It's our year, baby. Yeah, hopefully nothing. <laughs> hopefully that doesn't come back to haunt us, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Don't speak too, don't speak too soon. Somebody said that at the beginning of uh, 2000 and uh, was it 2020 when when the pandemic hit? It was right at the beginning uh -huh. of the year, and somebody paid <laughs> for everybody's food at a, at a restaurant, and so they uh -huh. did like a news interview about it. And this woman was like, right. "2020 is going to be the greatest year ever." And then they kept replaying that clip throughout the whole year. <laughs> anyway, guys, I saw something the other yeah other other day too. And then I realized this is in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, that this year, twenty twenty two is you is is twenty twenty two. Yeah, <laughs> part it's just two. No, shit all over again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. All right, see you guys. Adios.